0: Savor 2011. Coverage by Craft Beer Radio. From Saturday, June 4th. Private Tasting Salon. A tasting with Ken Grossman of Sierra Nevada. Welcome everybody. I think we're in for a special treat here uh, this evening. What we have in this uh, room is a private tasting with Ken Grossman and some of his friends and some uh, really interesting beers here tonight. Um, Ken uh, opened the homebrew shop in 1976 and then got Sierra Nevada Brewing Company up and running by uh, 1980. Uh, Ken has led the uh, technical and technology committees for the Brewers Association for many years, and he was recognized by his peers uh, with the Russell Shear Award for Innovation in Craft Brewing in 2010. Um, Ken has led beer quality initiatives that have benefited brewers and beer drinkers together, And he is, I would say, the most respected member of the craft brewing community. If you asked uh, people in craft brewing who's the guy, it's Ken. And um, Ken's beers are so good that they even named a mountain range after them. So So, uh, please join me in welcoming Ken Grossman.
1: Thanks, Paul. We'll let these folks get seated here, and then we'll get started. Uh, um, I wanted to start off by saying thanks for coming tonight and, and we do have a special treat. Um, many of you probably are, are aware of the brands uh, of pale ale or, or our pale ale which we started brewing more than 30 years ago. Uh, we've been known for hoppy, um, hoppy styles of beers for, for most of our history. Um, but if you were to come to Chico, you would have been able to taste a whole range of beers we've been brewing. We've got a small little research brewery that brews 10-barrel batches and so we've experimented over the years with, uh, with many different styles. I had the opportunity uh, in the last uh, couple years to explore going a little different direction. We, we have a, uh, a monastery located just north of Chico in the town of Vina, um, and they uh, approached us uh, last year asking if we would help them raise some money for a, uh, a reconstruction of a 12th century chapter house they were trying to uh, bring back to life. It was uh, originally dismantled by William Randolph Hearst in the 30s, uh, shipped over in, in uh, I think three boats to, well, we'll let this group get settled here. Three, three boats to California with the idea of rebuilding the chapter house into a mansion, uh, home, uh, guest home for for um, the Hearst family. Um, William of Hearst ran into some financial troubles. The stones were eventually donated to the city of San Francisco, uh, where they sat for many years and and languished in the. The crates they were in uh, fell apart and were, I think, involved in a fire. Uh, I'm going to let uh, Father Paul Mark here speak speak a bit more about it. But we were uh, you know, approached to try to help to, to uh, restore this chapter house. So um, we got together with the Abbey of New Clairvaux, uh, which is a, a small Trappist monastery uh, just north of Chico, uh, with the idea of trying to help raise some funds for them to restore this this 12th century chapter house. Um, I'm going to uh, introduce a couple other uh, of the um, Uh, The monks that are here, Uh, Father Thomas, um, raise your hand here. Uh, Father is the retired abbot from um, New Clairvaux, and uh, he was very much involved in finding those stones and bringing them up to Chico. Um, And Father um, Brendan, uh, 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 Brendan, um, who is uh, from uh, uh, Trappist Monastery in Iowa, and he's here visiting today as well. And then Father Paul Mark, to my right, who is the current abbot of, of New Clairvaux. Uh, so, I, I think I'll let Father uh, Paul Mark talk a bit about the, the stones and their journey to Chico, and then we'll get the beer out to talk about the project a bit more. You know, Ken, I think you know
2: more about the project than this I do, so. to be honest with you. Um, well, but it really is true. There is a mountain range in California that uh, Ken gave the name to after the beer became so very popular there, uh, Sierra Nevada. <laughs> 65 uh, feet of snow this winter we're a bit relieved that there's going to be a great barley harvest if it ever dries out um, as you know um, Sierra Nevada actually has a barley field and some hops but it's not going to be a good year I don't think for that harvest so we hope it doesn't affect the quality of the beer but as he did say uh, we do have uh, this incredible project And I still remember that Saturday in February of 2010, I wasn't there, but I I sent my director of of development for this project to uh, Sierra Nevada. I said, meet with Ken Grossman again. Um, You have to remember, we've been working on this since 2004. I said, well, it's not going to hurt. The most he's going to say is, forget it. Uh, We can't help you out. Well, much to our surprise, um, not only did he say yes, but even to my greater surprise, here I am tonight in Washington, D.C., about 3,000 miles from that little cloistered contemplative monastery when I left the world in 1980, as Ken was getting his start there in Chico. Little did I know that the two of us would be meeting in Chico and becoming very great friends. And I have to say... Uh, if, if, if the uh, market for Sierra Nevada has increased in the last year, it's because the monks are drinking a lot more beer <laughs> than we had anticipated. When I met him the first time, I said, you know, I really can't say I really care for that uh, ale, ale that you make. That's your signature beer there in, in Sierra Nevada. Well, I have to say tonight, I've, I've really come to realize, you know, he really has got a good product there. i rather like it, but um, at any rate, we do have this project. We are very appreciative of the relationship the monastery has with Ken and the whole Sierra Nevada family. It's incredible. If you've never been out to Chico, California, you must do so. And if you do come out, I want you to know that you are most welcome. To visit the, the monastery, not just see the project, but just to see to see us—we're uh, a real live monastery of monks. We didn't die out with the Middle Ages, um, and we'd love to show you around. Just ask for Father Paul Mark, and if I'm home, I could be in Washington D.C. <laughs> I'd be happy to um, to host you. I'm going to hand it over back now to Ken here.
1: So a little bit of history about uh, um, many um, monasteries throughout the ages actually have made beer or other products, and the, the Trappist tradition is to work with their hands and work with agriculture and, and to support themselves with their endeavors, and, and that's continued on, and there's actually a... a uh, uh, still a group of, of Trappist breweries um, in Belgium that are brewing Trappist beers at their monasteries. What we're doing, since we're not a Trappist uh, organization, uh, we're brewing an Abbey beer to support uh, the monastery. So we don't uh, call our beer a Trappist beer. It's not a true Trappist beer. It would have to be brewed by the monks, uh, or at, the, at least at the, the monastery. Um, so we have a, um, a style of beer that is very similar to some of the Belgian styles of beer. We... We took a, a trip, Father Thomas and some of my brewers and I took a trip last year uh, to Belgium and visited uh, um, a number of the Trappist breweries as well as some of the other Belgian breweries and, and got some insight and, and uh, thoughts on uh, a style that we wanted to brew. We, we didn't necessarily want to copy the, the uh, exact styles that were being brewed in Belgium but wanted to, to honor the, the style of Belgian brewing. And one of the things we, we found out was a, a lot of uh, what goes into making a, a great and unique Belgian beer has a lot to do with the fermentation profile, the type of yeast that's used, the, uh, the maturation methods, the, the type of uh, fermenter uh, vessels that are used. And so we brewed this beer in open fermentation tanks like they traditionally would have brewed. Um, and we bottle conditioned it so that there's yeast in the bottle that develops the carbonation. So it's uh, stylistically you know, a, a traditional uh, type of beer that would have been brewed by a, a monastery. But it's our version and it's, a, it's an Abbey ale. So this beer uh, contains some things from Belgium. We actually brought over some special sugars that were used, uh, which impart a lot of the, the flavor. Our, our heritage at Sierra Nevada has really been to focus on hops and, and uh, not so much on multi-characters. So this is a bit of a diversion from our, our typical style of, of brewing that we do. Uh, when we first started talking to the monastery, we thought we would do... Uh, sort of a, a multi uh, faceted project with a number of beers. In this first year, we decided to do a, a double, which is what this is, um, a Saison, which we just uh, bottled in the last week, um, and it also is bottle conditioned. It will undergo uh, a number of weeks probably uh, six to eight weeks of bottle conditioning before it's, it's distributed. Uh, and then we're going to finish up with a quad, which is a uh, a much more amped up version of, of this style of beer, so malty and, and uh, a, a bit of uh, a higher alcohol level. Um, I'll get a sip of this here. So as I mentioned, this is bottle conditioned, that has live yeast in the bottle. And, and one of the, the unique things that we um, Uh, talked to some of the brewers about was the fact that these beers continue to mature and age and develop over a a long period of time. So this is a couple months old now. Um, It is a cork finished bottle and corks do allow a little bit of oxygen ingress to to get in just like a a wine bottle would. So this beer will continue to develop and change in character and and, you know we haven't brewed uh, this before in this quantity. We did a number of test batches so we, we don't know how it'll taste in 5 or 10 years, but we're pretty certain it's going to still taste great and continue to develop for a number of years anyway. Uh, this is being served a little bit cold, so it's, uh, it's a little bit lacking in some of the aroma right now, so you might want to warm it up just a little bit. Um, I'm going to encourage you throughout the evening to, to ask questions as we go, so if there's anything that has uh, sparked uh, a question at this point, I'd be happy to. Um, I see Paul coming up here, and Paul's going to ask questions or take a mic around. Do we need mics?
0: Uh, yeah, we should have the mics because this is being taped for yeah, okay. Craft Beer Radio, where you can all listen to this again afterwards. So uh, when you do have a question, just
1: raise your hand and I'll give you the mic. No questions? Um, so uh, one of the things that uh, we were very fortunate uh, when we took uh, our trip to Belgium with Father Thomas was we, we did get to go visit the uh, uh, sort of behind the scenes of, of many of these breweries, which... Uh, are not normally open to uh, people to visit these small operations. Um, you know, the, the, the monks have a mission, and it's not necessarily brewing beer. It's uh, um, you know, it's it's education, and I think the Trappist tradition. I want to talk a little about that. But uh, there's a fantastic library at uh, the monastery at uh, New Clairvaux, and I know that's been a, a trafficked... Trappist tradition to study and and, uh, spend their their hours studying. So they're not necessarily brewing beer as we would as our occupation. They're brewing beer as a way to to support their their livelihood and their monastic ways. want to comment? Yeah, no,
2: I mean, uh, basically the life that we're living, uh, really it goes back to Egypt and Syria in the 4th century, but uh, um, immediately back to 1098 in the area of Burgundy in France, but it was always a balance between what we called a, a, a prayer, a liturgical prayer, chanting psalms, uh, Divina, or, well, prayer and meditation and study, as, as uh, Ken has already said, and manual labor. It's a great balance. You exercise your, your, your mind, your heart, and your hands. At least we hope we exercise our hands out there in the, the fields. But uh, So manual labor was always important that we would support ourselves with our own income to to make possible the life that we live. So we still do that, except when you get unusual projects like restoring 12th century Cistercian Chapter House from Spain, you can't quite uh, bring in the income that's going to support that, and that's how Sierra Nevada fits in, but uh, that's exactly it. So we're not here, our, our life isn't about brewing or making chocolate or fruitcakes or cheese, which... We're growing uh, sunsweet prunes, which we do, and our, our own little winery, which you'll see on the website, uh, which we also have. But it's just to support the monastery. So that's the idea of um, the breweries that are our monasteries. There's seven of them in Belgium, and in uh, one in in the Netherlands, just across the border from from Belgium, that continue to support themselves through these excellent uh, different uh, styles that you're, one of them you're tasting tonight. It's, it's, it's Sierra Nevada's style on a, on a take on the doable, but I mean, that's what it's, it's all about, beer production for our monasteries.
1: The, the uh, question?
0: I have two, actually. The first is you mentioned that you used sugars that were brought in from Belgium. From Belgium, Belgium. Yep. W- how do those sugars differ from what's available here? Like- uh,
1: they're a caramelized type of sugar. So they're, the way they're produced and cooked down uh, from uh, the sugar syrup uh, develops a lot of flavor and aroma in the sugar. So they're uh, a candy sugar, uh, uh, um, a grade of sugar that's got some color and aroma and flavor. So that's been developed during the process of making it into a syrup.
0: Okay. And the other question is, how will this develop? How will it change as it ages?
1: it 'll start to get some whiny characters, um, one of the things that um, some beer styles can benefit or or i won 't say benefit but evolve in a manner that that uh, adds complexity by the slow oxidation and the uh, the changes that happen just through the chemical reactions of of aging uh, mallard reactions or, or oxidation reactions of some of the sugars and other things in it so it 'll develop some um, Um, fruity notes from the uh, maturation process that will develop some additional sweetness. Uh, Some of the hops, and there's not a lot of hops, and this is a fairly low bitterness beer, but the hops will even diminish a little bit more and the whiny character uh, will develop more. Uh, Most beer styles don't benefit from that kind of aging process, and so you wouldn't want to take a light lager and age it with a cork-finished bottle. Um, And the characteristics it would develop would be more papery and cardboardy and, and negative kinds of flavors, but a beer style like this, like many you know, more bold wine styles, uh, can tolerate uh, slow oxidation and will evolve and develop some more uh, interest and complexity uh, in bottle. Correct. Um, and part of it, I mentioned cork, cork finishes. Um, we've we've got a fairly uh, sophisticated research and development lab, and we've done a lot of work over the years on bottle cap liners, and, and uh, trying to prevent oxygen from getting into bottles. Uh, most beer that, uh, if it's not bottle conditioned, uh, the day it's bottled is really when it's at its best. And the slow oxidation that happens through the bottle cap liner, even though the bottle cap's holding the carbonation in, oxygen slowly migrating back into the beer, uh, will degrade the beer over time. And so most shelf life changes in bottled beer uh, are contributed pretty heavily by the oxygen ingress, as well as storage conditions, temperature, light. Uh, are, are big factors. Um, so we've done a lot of research and studies on bottle cap liners, and we switched from a twist-off to a pry-off many years ago uh, when we couldn't find a twist-off liner that would block the oxygen as well as the uh, some uh, fairly new materials that were being used in bottle caps that were being made in Germany. So we actually went to a pry-off cap because it wouldn't work as a twist-off. Uh, a, a twist-off bottle cap is much softer. If you ever twist one off and poke at it, it sort of uh, uh, very soft in nature so it allows you to spin it off and it has a lubricant a mineral oil normally added to that plastic formulation uh, which allows it to spin when you're trying to twist it off uh, and that material is more porous than, uh, than the material that a pry-off cap not all pry-offs, most pry-offs actually use the same material but we're using a, an oxygen barrier we did that to try to keep oxygen out well a beer like this can tolerate some oxygen and a, a cork actually is worse than a twist-off as far as preventing oxygen from coming in and we wouldn't use a cork finished bottle for a type of beer that uh, can't tolerate oxygen. So a hoppy beer, typically oxygen is gonna be bad. It will degrade the hops. Um, a lighter, lighter style of beer as well would not be uh, good with a cork finish bottle. So we limit the, the type of packaging based on the style of beer.
3: Say so Ken, uh, I understand in Brussels, there's a vault with the yeast from the Trappist Monastery beers and maybe other beers in Europe and uh, I, I don't know how true this is but I understand the yeast is the secret to the Belgian flavor, is that true?
1: Um, yeasts are very important in all beer and, and uh, the yeast adds a lot of character um, you can brew the same base beer and add different yeast strains and it'll make much different beers so yeah, yeast are important to brewers. Uh, there's literally thousands of yeasts around the world and they're they're floating around the air, they're in areas that have a lot of fruit there's natural yeast that develop so uh, there are yeast banks and yeast libraries uh, that are kept around the world there's some in germany england us has some uh, and they've collected a lot of these cultures Uh, brewers normally are pretty protective of their yeast strains um, but you can you know go to some of these yeast laboratories and buy um, trappist yeast um, which is being marketed that way which was either given, isolated, or somehow uh, um, uh, obtained from, uh, from the breweries. So these yeast libraries, they, they normally would take a yeast that works well and try to put it in their library and, and keep it as a mother culture that other brewers can use. Uh, would, that, would that Trappist
3: yeast be under the trademark Trappist? <laughs>
1: um, There are uh, um, a handful of yeasts that are used in Trappist beers, but there are a lot of yeasts that probably would give you very similar characteristics that 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 Trappist yeast has. Um, One thing that I will say is that beers that are bottle-conditioned, such as our pale ale, have live yeast in them, uh, and some of the Trappist beers are the same way. So if anybody wants to try to culture or clone that yeast, uh, you can go to a naturally-conditioned beer and isolate those yeast cells, and then you've got that yeast strain. So our pale ale yeast... Uh, is now being sold by probably all those yeast laboratories as Chico Yeast or Sierra Nevada Yeast or whatever. So uh, it's widely available. And that one of the downsides of bottle conditioning is your yeast strain is now available to whoever wants to culture it out of a bottle. Um, So it's part of the process. It certainly doesn't make, uh, you know, it's not the only factor in making a beer interesting or making a beer good. Thank you. The questions. Um, one of the, um, um, the, the interesting facts about the, the monastery in Vina, it was actually uh, Leland Stanford's ranch, um, Stanford University. And he, at one point in time, uh, had the largest winery in the world mm-hmm. and um, produced uh, wine. And then when he couldn't sell it all, he started making brandy. So there still are brandy sellers at the, at the monastery. Uh, and there's still the old winery building, and I think it's, what, about three acres uh, under roof of a heavily insulated brick building that was built... um
2: Built in 1885, and it was created to have the same effects as a cave where, you know, you would age wine and you didn't have the fluctuation in temperatures and, you know, in humidity, that kind of thing. And to this day, you know, the Sacramento Valley... uh, Normally about this time of the year, we're beginning to hit in the 90s and then in the 100s until August or September. It's a little different this year. It's snowing up in the mountains right now, but um, uh, it'll still be 30 degrees difference. I mean, there's windows in this huge building. There's doors. It's fascinating. And it's to let all this hot, summer, dry air in. And uh, you get in the middle of that winery, and it's still about 30 degrees difference. Uh, from the outside temperature. So it's just an incredible building, incredible history, and uh, so that's why we're very excited about uh, this relationship as well.
1: They've recently built a winery there, so they have a Trappist winery, and and the only one in the United States. The only
2: one in the United States, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, there's only uh, Huerta in Spain. or no, no, Latrun in Israel. There, there's two of, we have, we, we've, we've got 175 monasteries around the world, okay? About 4,000 of us um, walking this earth. <laughs> and we've got, uh, there's three of us that have wineries. And of course, there's a long history of winemaking, like there is beer making in our monasteries, going back, obviously, to Burgundy, to our oldest monastery of Citeaux. So um, there's a long history here of association with uh, very fine products, refined liqueurs, chartreuse, um, benedictine, you know, things that uh, hopefully um, uh, benefit the palate as well as the the heart, so anyway. Thank you.
1: That's a question.
0: Um, First of all, what would it take to actually make the first American Trappist beer without ticking off our Belgian friends, obviously.
1: Um, There's actually one of the uh, American Trappist monasteries uh, is working on a project right now in collaboration with um, their Belgium brethren. So um, I don't know when that's going to happen, but uh, Father Paul Mark is here at a conference of of, of monks, uh, superiors, um, uh, and one of the other monasteries is planning on on doing it um, in Pennsylvania. Uh, In Massachusetts. Massachusetts, excuse me
2: that would okay.
1: probably be in another year
0: or so. Uh, next question, you talked about that you used open fermentation on it. Um, if, what's the point of using open fermentation? I'm assuming that you try to keep uh, all of the external bacterias and, and, and wild yeast out of it, or are you just letting in whatever, whatever you let in?
1: No. Uh, most beer today is brewed in closed fermenters, um, where the, the tank is pretty much sealed. It's got a conical bottom. They're called tanks. Or conical fermentation tanks. Uh, the advantages are at the end of fermentation, the yeast settles into the bottom of the cone. You can harvest the yeast out from under the beer. Um, so the CO2 can be captured off the top and and collected and used in the process rather than vented in the atmosphere. Uh, they're easier to clean. Nobody needs to climb inside of them. You can have a cleaning machine that automatically or semi automatically cleans the inside of the tank without anybody having to scrub it. Uh, open fermenters at least ours anyway, and a lot of them have to be manually scrubbed. Somebody has to jump into them and you have to scrub them. We have uh, mainly closed fermenters, mainly conical fermenters, uh, but they typically are taller, um, so they will be, you know, maybe uh, two and a half, three times higher than they are in diameter. So it might be there's 30 feet of of liquid height uh, in the fermentation tank or more even. Uh, And that hydrostatic pressure is a little hard on the yeast and changes the ester profile, the aroma profile and one of the things that uh, some styles of beer, we make our wheat beer in those open fermenters as well. Um, the ester profiles are nicer in shallower fermentation tanks, and so we, we choose to use those. Uh, the tanks are located in a room that has filtered air and is positive pressurized, and so we, we do everything we can to try to keep any bacteria out of the, out of the space. But um, uh, we found that you know, the, the nicer flavors were created by brewing in shallower tanks, and so we, we chose to use that for these beers. What,
0: um, uh, how many different tank shapes do you have that you can, you know, basically pick the tank that fits your beer style?
1: Well, we've got uh, 100 barrel open, for, well, we've got, uh, let's see, we've got 10 barrel, um, uh, we've got some 10, 10 barrel fermenters, 20 barrel fermenters uh, that are conical. We've got uh, 100 barrel opens, 200 barrel conicals, 400 barrel conicals, 800 barrel conicals, so... And all of them have little different characteristics. So we, we do pick and choose uh, what beers go into what tanks at times. Uh, um, yeah. Father, can you talk about... I saw on PBS, Father, um, a, um, a segment about the stone cutters for the, for the um, chapter house. Can you tell us about that?
2: Okay. I, well, there, there's been a number of... Uh, videos done on that. I'm not too sure which one you're referring to, but uh, perhaps it's the one that uh, PBS did on no- Nova, program Nova, on the, uh, the situation of Gothic architecture in Europe, the mistakes that the medieval builders built. And the thing is, the project we have, they began the construction in, in 1190. And our Cistercian tradition has always been on the cutting edge of innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship. You might think, well, what does monasteries, uh, what do they have to do with all that? But at any rate, we do have to do with all that (laughs) in our history for various reasons, as I attempted to share a little earlier. But one of them was that movement from Romanesque architecture to Gothic architecture. And the chapter house we have is the only example. All of Europe, even though it sits here in, Cali- or it sits in California right now, is that movement from Romanesque to Gothic. And when Nova discovered that we had this project going, uh, it's, it's one of, you know what, three medieval sites, okay, of all well, North America, right? You've heard of the cloisters in New York, maybe you've heard of the place down in Miami Beach, Florida. And, uh, but at any rate, as uh, engineers architecture, history, you know, this kind of thing, and it's not, you know, it's not just about theology. Well, it is about theology, about the transcendence, but um, it incorporates what we are and and the world we live in. well, as as these places have come to know more and more about this incredible project, they just show up in our back door, as it were, wanting to, to do a story or to do filming of it. And uh, so the most recent one was just last fall that NOVA did, and it was just incredible. I just really recommend you, you get the whole story of what we're doing and what it's all about. This movement from Romanesque to Gothic architecture, if you're into architecture, it's all happening right there. In Vina, California, I don't know what's comparable here in the East Coast, or in this area of Virginia, believe me, Vine is about 300 people. And it's a dusty little town north of Chico. And yet we have all this incredible story between Leland Stanford, Willie Randolph Hearst, which are pretty big names in California, as well as our own tradition, um,
1: et cetera. I don't know if that's really a- answering your question. But. Well, they have a uh, uh, one of the stonemasons who's doing, who's heading up the reconstruction. Yeah. Um, spends part of his year in Vina and part of his year working in uh,
2: Luxor, Egypt. He works for the University of Chicago and there are uh, projects there in Egypt in restoring the four thousand year old temples in, in in the Nile valley uh, Frank helmholtz is
1: is there so so if you 're ever in Vina, it 'd be worth a trip uh, out to the monastery a tremendous team'
2: it 's a team that 's almost as tremendous as the Sierra, Sierra Nevada team here. <laughs> Which is, believe me, it's it's incredible. You got to see the brewery
1: sometime. It's it's out of this world. Um, we we can move. We have four other beers to taste. So um, if we can uh, can get through them, great. Otherwise, uh, we'll get through as many as we can. But uh, I don't know if there's any more questions on uh, on the uh, Ovala project or the monastery. If not, I'll talk a little bit about uh, something else we have going on, which is uh, beer camp. And we, as I mentioned, have. 10, uh, Ten barrel brew house so we can actually make very small batches of of beer and we started a few years ago to uh... use the the little brewing facility to educate uh... retailers uh... uh distributors um, uh... people in the trade and started to realize that there's a lot of value to try to educate consumers as well so uh... we started a, a project where we invited in a, a group of uh... uh of people who um... could Somehow convinced us they were worthy to come to Chico, and uh, we're doing it again this year. Uh, 12 people from uh, outside of California and 12 people from California get a chance to come to Chico, and it's a, a fairly in depth uh, uh, training about beer, brewing, sensory, um, and you get to develop a recipe for a beer, you get to brew the beer, you get to come up with a, a name for the beer, uh, a concept for a label. Uh, and then we get the beer um, registered by the TTB and we try to send it back to your hometown to uh, uh, to allow you to to drink that at your local tavern and show off to your friends. Uh, and it was such a successful and fun program that we decided to, to bring a few of those to the market. And so we've got four different beer camp beers today um, that we can try to sample through. And I think we'll just go ahead and pop all four of the different ones and we'll start passing them around. Um, we... Uh, we actually, three of these are really beer camp beers, and one of them is a collaboration we did with a, another German brewery on a, uh, uh, a wheat beer. So we've got a, um, a, a beer, if we can start me with the California Common, um, uh, which was one of the beer camp beers, which was a, uh, uh, a common beer which was brewed in, in California and actually parts of the US before there was refrigeration. Uh, and California, particularly the Bay Area, was, was one of the places where this beer was brewed. Uh, brewed with a lager yeast uh, and uh, at ale temperatures. So before, brewers had a lot of fermentation capacity. Uh, they, some of them could only brew in the wintertime because they didn't have a way to keep the fermentation from getting too warm and causing uh, off flavors or contamination. And so we, uh, this is our, our take on a, uh, on a California common. And this, again, came out of a, a beer camp concept. Yeah, those of you, there's water and uh, and a dump bucket there. California Common, and, and uh, it, it got its name. Um, the Anchor Steam Brewery is is probably the the last uh, true California Common that was sort of brewed uh, from uh, the time of the Gold Rush all, all the way through present day. Um, and the, the steam beer was also a name given to to common beer. Um, and the, the way steam got its name is at this point not even totally understood by Fritz Maytag, who uh, owns the brewery or owned the brewery. Um, some people said it was because when it was uh, dispensed, it foamed and looked like steam. Other people said it had such high pressure because, again, refrigeration was really lacking at that, that point when it was brewed uh, that the kegs would uh, blow their bungs sometimes and, and all foam out, like again, like steam. Um, but this is our interpretation. We can't call it steam beer because that's at this point Fritz Maytag's... Uh, um, um, uh, world but uh, so it's a california common style but it's a, it's a style of beer so lager yeast the yeast was brought over by the german immigrants um and again pre-refrigeration times this would be a a beer that was brewed or a style of beer that was brewed
0: so for the people in this room if they wanted to apply for beer camp how would they go about that
1: um you can go to the the website which is uh, um well, you can go to our website, SierraNevada.com. There's actually a separate beer, beer camp website. There's something at our table that uh, has all the information on it as well. So if you want to swing by our table, you can you can learn about beer camp. Uh, we just uh, had the pleasure of hosting some of the Brewers Association members at beer camp the last few weeks. And uh, they had the opportunity. They, they work in the brewing industry and know a lot about beer and brewing. And they had the opportunity to come and, and uh, brew their own beer and, and um, I think you know, learned a bit more about beer and brewing. Our brewers lead people through the whole process. You're not left on your own to come up with a beer and a beer style, but uh, uh, it is uh, significantly influenced by the group of people that are there, and uh, they pick the direction and the yeast and the type of malt, and uh, people are allowed to smell the hops and taste the grains and get some idea on how each of those things uh, impart character into the beer. Yep.
4: In order to be deemed worthy, um, are there still still the criteria for that you had for the 12 people,
0: or are they? Are
1: no, no, just one there. of you uh, has to, one or two. We've had a couple of couples, but um, submit a video, uh, um, write a song. Um, it, you know, it doesn't have to be anything to do with beer. Um, it just has to show that you're enthusiastic about um, wanting to come, and it's um, selected by a, a group of us. Uh, we have a... Um, popcorn showing of all the, the videos and read the stories, and, and uh, a group of us pick out who gets to come. Thank so, you. Yeah, uh, you, I think on our website there's examples of, of some of the past winners, so you get an idea of, of uh, what it takes to come. And in, outside of California, most states will pay your way and uh, uh, host you at the brewery for a few days. So. So the, the next beer um, I think uh, we'll, we'll drink is, uh, we'll save the double IPA for last. Um, we're, we're gonna try a uh, Wiesenbach, Weizenbach. Any comments on this before we, we switch? Again, lager yeast, ale temperatures, a little more fruity and a little more characteristic out of a lager yeast than you would get um, at the, the colder fermentation temperatures. This, this next beer actually didn't quite come out of a, a beer camp beer. It was a, um, um, a collaboration with uh, a small brewery uh, right outside of Nuremberg. And they're a family brewery, um, and we had a fellow working for us who lived in Nuremberg, and he loved their wheat beer and used to come and tell us we should brew a beer like, like their wheat beer, and he would bring us bottles of it. And we, we started a relationship with them, and the yeast the for our... Keller Weiss, wheat beer, comes from that brewery, um, the Gutmann Brewery in um, in Nuremberg, right outside of Nuremberg. Um, again, brewers normally don't like to share yeast, but uh, if you have a friendly relationship and, and they uh, appreciate what you're doing, so they gave us their yeast strain, which we really liked, um, and their, the son of the owner came to Chico, and, and uh, we brewed this beer with them, and um, everybody liked it a lot, and so we thought, well, well, we'll do this. It was a partial beer camp. We had some other people involved, but... Um, This is not one that that truly came out of the beer camp series. So this, again, is using open fermentation tanks uh, to try to to minimize that hydrostatic head on the yeast and allow some more fruitiness to develop. So this beer has no spices or other things added. Uh, The aromas all come from the yeast strain. So this is, uh, again, quite a a different direction from our pale ale or from the, the oval as far as the contribution the yeast makes to the beer. These are out right now, but they're selling quickly. We did just a a small run of mixed packs. Um, Doing a a mixed pack of beer for us, for any brewery, is sort of tough because you have to bottle one, bottle another, bottle another, then open all the cases up and start switching bottles. There's not an automated way to do that.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, Not an easy automated way to do that. Um, So we don't want to do a ton of these, but we did. uh, There's some out here, I know, in this area. I don't know where you're, you're from, but I think it's in the marketplace here now. Um, the next one is a beer camp beer. It's a juniper black ale. Uh, and I've got, the, if there are any beer geeks here, I've got all the spec sheets with alcohol and bitterness and, and uh, all that and different hopping. Um, this was a, uh, a beer that came out of a beer camp concept. So people came and said, one person actually brought their own juniper berries and wanted to use them. Uh, they'd picked them up in the forest near their house and wanted to use them in the beer. So uh, this had uh, a, a lot of excitement around it. And so we, we, duplicated this for beer camp. Any, any comments on the Wiesenbach as far as that flavor characteristic? It's it's a, an unusual one for uh, American Thank tastes, um, this style of, of wheat beer. And, and there's wheat beers brewed in, in many parts of the world, um, and some of them have very distinctive characteristics. Some of the wheat beers brewed in this country that you may be familiar with are more or less an ale with wheat malt, Um, so there's not a yeast that imparts a a lot of clove and phenolic character like we use in this this beer. So this is a a true Bavarian-style wheat beer using a a yeast that that is a different strain of yeast that really puts off some different flavor characteristics as it ferments. Anybody pick up the clovey character in the beer? And also what's called phenolic characters, but it's uh, almost a little bit of Um, Band-Aid-y. And the Band-Aid's not maybe the the most positive descriptor, but uh, it it does contribute some some different aroma profiles. Okay, and then the the Juniper you've got next at this point. So we tried to not go too overboard with Juniper berries. um, So I I don't know, it's not a heavy, heavy heavy-handed Juniper beer. These beers, are, I think, are also in the marketplace on draft right now in this area um, for the next few weeks. And this is one I know that, that's had a few that counts. It's got a fair amount of roasted malt, which is, is coming through that coffee flavor.
0: That's interesting. That's really neat. I like that juniper berry flavor.
1: Yeah, we actually uh, dry hopped with juniper berries. Um, we, uh, after the fermentation process, put some, um, some juniper in, um, ground it up. with a little grinder and, and put it in mesh bags and uh, essentially did a infusion of, of juniper berries. One thing the American craft brewing industry has done is really open the, the palate. I mean, Belgium is a country Probably had the most interesting styles of beer that were uh, were diversions from the traditional brewing ingredients. Um, in, in Germany, there's a there's a law that pretty much prohibits the use of anything other than um, malt, hops, uh, yeast, and water. Um, and back in the early days, yeast wasn't even understood, so it was really uh, malt and hops. Um, but it's really constricted sort of the experimentation where in Belgium they were very free to experiment. So there were lots of herbs and spices. So um, the, the Belgium culture really has fostered uh, a lot of innovation and, and uh, using wild yeasts and using other kinds of cultures that uh, were not used anywhere else. Well, the, the American craft brewing industry has sort of picked up on that and taken it to another level. Uh, so today the, the American brewers really have... Push the limits and um, have produced a, a range of beers that were probably unknown or, or unheard of uh, before this time uh, and a lot of the Europeans now are looking at, at how vibrant a uh, culture we have in America for beer and they're starting to, to bring some of those thoughts back to Europe, back to Germany um, and it's currently illegal to even do things like dry hopping so, so a process that uh, we've done for many, many years of adding hops to the aging tank so as the beer is, is aging after fermentation. Uh, you infuse fresh hops into the beer and extract a lot of oils and aroma. That's illegal in Germany if you take a strict strict interpretation of the Rehensburg, where some German brewers are starting to fudge a little bit and do some of those practices after they've seen and tasted some of the American beers. Um, And other parts of the world, um, Italy, England, uh, 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 they picked up on what we're doing as well. And so there's now a lot of American hops going to... European brewers to make IPAs and double IPAs, so we've had a a distinct influence on the world of of beer and brewing, uh, which has been very exciting for us to see. It wasn't that many years ago where, you know, American beer was really, um, you know, thought of in great distaste by a a European coming to America. I can't drink American beer. It's just like water. Um, Today, that's not the the notion. There's a lot of respect now, and... and, um, It's really been from the craft brewing side. It hasn't been from any any of the major brewers. Um, So I I think, uh, you know, as an industry, we've collectively done a lot for beer and beer culture around the world, and it's it's really starting to sort of snowball. Um, There's almost 1,800 craft brewers in America today. Um, There were 40 of us back in 1980. 40 breweries in 1980 when I started, Um, and today, you know, just a huge explosion. And that same thing has started to happen around the world. So where um, beer was becoming very, uh, um, you know, one-dimensional uh, one uh, around most parts of the world, and including Germany, uh, fairly disappointing to see what's happened in, in uh, famous brewing cultures where the beers have gotten very much the same, uh, low common denominator, um, not much innovation. Uh, and their beer industry has been suffering because of it. Beer has been down. Czechoslovakia and Germany, you know, sort of renowned brewing cultures have really diminished in their uh, sales every year by a fairly high percentage, and some of the German brewers uh, have made pilgrimages to the U.S., and they come to our conferences over here uh, to learn about beer and brewing. So that's, uh, you know, uh, quite a turnaround in in how beer is perceived uh, uh, by brewers around the world. Yes.
3: Say, Ken, why is it that the uh, Belgium Trappist monasteries win the award for the best beers of the world consistently? What is it about Belgium that does that?
1: Uh, Well, West Lateran is, is, uh, I don't know if they've consistently won the awards. They're they're number one on Beer Advocate um, and uh, uh, in part because it is incredibly scarce. Um, it's it's a uh, a little bit of a cult thing and not that the beers aren't good so d- don't get me wrong there um, but uh... you know they produce a very little amount of beer it's a, a very uh, uh... prized uh... thing to get a a, a bottle of west letter 12. Um, it's not distributed and it's bootleg and it creates a, quite a bit of mystique so that's a little bit of it but uh, they're very interesting beers and, and uh, you know, again as i said in the beginning one of the things we we understood realized is it's not about exotic ingredients, so those brewers don't use the fanciest hops, they don't use um, you know, very uh, special malts, they use you know, regular malt, regular hops, and, and a lot of it has to do with the yeast, uh, a lot of it has to do with the process. Uh, um, again, they're, they're specially handled, they're months old quite often, so they get a lot of bottle age. Most of those Belgian beers are, are actually fairly old when you get them and a lot of that character is developed by part of that, and it's a style of beer that can handle that aging and, and cl- complexity building. Yeah, of course. Um,
4: I think this, that also is, what is, is
1: it, I mean, this is Flores, no. who's a, a, a Belgian brewer.
4: Um. Um, what, what I think is, is um, there is a lot of excitement about Belgian beers, and there's a lot of excitement in, in America, but what I think is, um, celebrate celebrated, what was it, the, the ter- 30? 30, 30th last year, yeah. uh, ter- 30 years in operation. When you talk about these beers, you have uh, monasteries that have been brewing beer for hundreds uh, of years. And I think that um, the, the Trappist monasteries in Belgium are really uh, centers of technology. That, that was where there was a lot of intellect, there were libraries, there was a lot of research. And it's actually a lot of Belgian beers that were not brewed at the monasteries benefited from the research, here you had people who could spend their time thinking about making beer and, um, and, and how to use the ingredients better and all that. So um, uh, the, the North America will have the best beers in a couple hundred years because there is all this energy. And I think that it's all of experience, of collaboration, of, of, of working together. And um, important this is that the monasteries first made a beer for themselves because it was part of what they, what they eat and drink every day, so every Belgian monastery still has a beer that is not for sale, that is slightly lower in alcohol that is very nutritious, and that, that, that is the, the first thing they do, and then there are these others and If you do that over a long time and you build a tradition, why is the Sierra Pele so good or the torpedo because it 's from Sierra Nevada because it 's a brewery that 's been doing it for a while, and I think that uh, you go also to restaurants that are, that are established, that are good, that, that, that have certain skills. So, so br- brewing,
1: there's a lot of tradition and art in it that is established over time. Uh, uh, G- Jean de Klerk, uh, who spent a lot of time helping one of the um, um, Belgium monasteries develop their beer, and a famous brewing researcher. He
4: was a famous professor in, uh, in Belgium, a brewing professor, and um, he helped in both uh, and uh, he, he established a lot of the, of, the, of the technical details of the beers.
3: I was in Scormont Abbey one time where they make Chimay, and they have, as you mentioned, a, a lower quality beer in the refectory for the monks. And one of the monks told me it's it's
1: the beer they flush out the
3: pipes with.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now those, those are stories you hear all over. I'm sure that's not the case. I've got a question. Okay. No. no.
2: Well, I, I you know my question is oh, if Ken I don't and I maybe can't answer it, but. Um, what would have caused the, atroph- the atrophying of beer development in Europe? And why was it that the rebirth of craft beer began here in
1: the United States and not some other place? Well, I mean, the same thing was happening in the U.S. And, and actually, when I was first running my business plan in 1978, the, uh, the most renowned um, industry analysts uh, predicted that there would only be two breweries left in the United States by the year 2000, that all the other breweries would go away. And here I'm writing my business plan to try to open a brewery and, and trying to get money from a bank. And they're, they're reading, you know, they're doing a little bit of research and saying, you're nuts, There's you know, breweries are, are going out of business. Um, from the, the time after Prohibition in the U.S., there was, you know, close to 1,000 breweries that opened back up after Prohibition. Um, the brewing industry became more and more homogenized. Um, the large brewers, uh, it was the advent of rail transportation um, national marketing campaigns and advertising uh, where larger breweries could get a, a bigger footprint and more effectively uh, market and advertise and so the, the small brewers who maybe made something unique and different, different, couldn't compete and so they, some of them started to make beers like the big brewers because they were growing and, and successful uh, so beer became you know Somewhat of a uh, generic product, and you know, it was happening in the 70s and uh, 60s and 70s in this country. Well, since probably the 50s and 60s, where beer was getting lighter, more more consumable, more drinkable, less costly to brew, um, and would uh, offend no one. Um, you know, m- most people don't like bitterness and uh, beers that were hoppy and and um, you know, contained a lot of flavor, offended some people, and they thought, you know, they do a, a focus group, and well, I don't like this one; it's too bitter. So the the sales guy said, the beer's too bitter; you got to drop the bitterness. And uh, so it ended up we had a, a fairly uh, homogenous product being brewed by by the U.S. Well, that same kind of thinking has happened around the, the world. Lager beers, what's brewed most of the world brews light lager style beers today. Um, they're refreshing. They're drinkable, um, but they don't have a lot going on as far as interest and quality. So beer became somewhat of a of a commodity. Paul. Oh. Yeah, we got one one last beer to go. So we have a, a double IPA to, to sample here to finish up with. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, but it's it's the, the U.S. I think you know we got to a point where there were few choices other than light than light lager beer. We didn't have some of the restrictions that they have in Germany, where in Germany, you've got to be a brewmaster to make beer. Uh, in, in the United States, if you want to make beer, you make beer. And so we don't have to have a, a diploma degree. So in the U.S., people like me, who was a home brewer, decided I want to make a different kind of a beer, and we started brewing beer. And that really put a spark into... But, um,
2: but, but what do you think convinced the American public, because this is a big thing now, I
1: mean well uh, you know the, sold the, the, them the, the craft segment is 5% of the US beer market well, and, that's true, true. and so i mean we're even though we we think we're and we are we're very uh, successful and the whole industry is growing well we're still a, a fairly small percentage of beer that's sold in this country so and, and we're we're maybe going to get to 10 or 15% uh, if you look at the parallels in in uh, wine uh, the high end of wine is 15 uh, 20% or so so uh, beer could be that craft beer and and high-end beer could be in that same range very easily. But today we're 5%. When I started, we were way less than 1%. Thank you. I appreciate uh, everybody coming. So this last one is a a fairly robust IPA, and this was a beer camp beer. And um, we've had a number of of brewers. And this is sort of a trend that, that, uh, again, I think the craft drinker is pushing the craft brewers and brewers in general to Innovate, make different things, stronger things, uh, beers that have, you know, more going on. And so, when we started with our pale ale in 1980 at 37 bitterness units, it was extreme. Today, beers are in the hundred bitterness unit levels. Um, I mean, I used to get a lot of people telling me, "Your beer's too bitter. I can't drink it." And we brewed what we wanted to brew, and so we kept brewing it. Uh, today, there's brewers saying, "Your beer is an entry," or consumers saying, "Your beer is an entry beer. It's the least bitter beer out there." Uh, of the craft beers, so uh, the, the dyna- dynamic has changed dramatically. So this is a, a fairly hoppy um, IPA, double IPA, that again was, was one of our beer camp groups wanting to do.
0: Yeah, uh, going along that theme with innovation and technology, um, you're no around, around the uh, brewing industry as someone who's very much into the science of the, of the process. Um, could you talk a little bit about how Sur Nevadas, you mentioned you have some R&D facilities, about how Sur Nevadas pushed that technology back when you were only, uh, 1980, only 40 breweries. And what, if, what was it that you didn't, um, was missing in the process or was missing in, that you felt that you had to develop? Or just, I'm sure some other stories other than just the bottle caps that you could talk about.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, in 1980, I didn't have an R&D facility. I, I, was, I did all the brewing. Um, I did all the bottling. I had one employee. Um, and we were barely, you know, making uh, a, a big day for us was uh, 100 cases of beer. I mean, it was uh, you know, very, very small operation. Um, and, you know, we made a lot of mistakes. We didn't make any that were fatal back then, but we, we learned from our mistakes and, and we innovated. Um, I mean, some of the things that we do today that we did then, and I think we've, we've really innovated around, uh, uh, we still use 100% whole cone hops. We don't use extracts or pellets, so we're, we're sort of... Uh, Stuck in the the tradition of you know let's use the flower petals as they're harvested from the field, which is a, a challenge because they don't store as well as extracts or pellets, and, and um, they're more fragile, they're harder to handle, they're you got to keep them frozen. I mean there's lots of challenges, but we've stuck to that. Uh, bottle conditioning I mentioned, um, you know we still bottle condition our pale ale, our our porter, our stout, our celebration, um, and especially brown tickets, This are all still bottle conditioned, so we. We do more of that, I think, than any brewery in the world. We're the largest bottle-conditioning brewery in the world. And that's a big challenge. I mean, that is not an easy thing to manage batch after batch to get the right CO2 level and yeast and no bacteria. Um, So we've really had to hone our game to do that um, day in and day out. But we've we've been able to to develop that. We don't pasteurize. uh, We never have. And, and again, that's a challenging thing to do for a, a, a brewery. I mean, Cordes does it. Uh, on a big scale, uh, but uh, we don 't sterile filter. we just try to keep a very clean operation from you know, from the get go um, we 've done a lot of hop research we actually have a person on staff who 's our hop researcher and we work with a lot of the hop breeders so we 've uh, innovated with hop varieties and we support the hop breeding program and, and work with the, the growers to, to try to find new aroma hops and different kind of characteristics and aromas and hops. Um, we work with barley breeders doing the same thing, trying to um, find barley growers who will not use a lot of pesticides. And, and uh, we have an organic uh, barley farm ourselves and an organic hop, hop farm at the brewery. Um, but we're also working with the industry to try to you know, look at other ways of, of growing rather than using lots of inputs. Um, so we've been working in a lot of those, those directions.
0: Okay, I think we're down to our last question on time. Um, Recently I've seen a couple breweries do estate beers. You were just saying that you had organic hop hop farms.
1: Can you just talk about your decision to just do an estate beer and that process? Yeah, actually going back a little bit, I'll talk just uh, for a minute. We we started doing uh, wet hop beers back, uh, I think it would be 14 years now. We were the first one in the U.S. to sort of take hops right from the field, right into the kettle without going through any processing at all. Uh, hops are a very aromatic plant and the normal way of handling them is to pick them uh, immediately dry them and bale them and then later on most of them are turned into pellets or extracts um, but we we had an old friend who had been in the hop industry for three generations an english fellow and he said he once had a beer that was uh, uh... hops right out of the field right into the brew kettle and it was amazing so we thought that sounds like fun so i um, I called one of my hop growers and said, we want to try doing this and we need to fly them down that day because uh, they, they're not stable from Yakima to Chico. And so we, uh, we, we air freighted them down and um, took uh, two airplanes, that turned out. I just said, well, we need 1,000 pounds, and I didn't realize how big that would be. But, um, and it made a wonderful beer, and we, we, we only did the air thing one time. Um, so from then on, we started getting a refrigerated truck, and we'd have them be in the field as they picked and drive down and they'd be in touch with our brewers and so we'd start the the brewing process up as the truck was arriving to town and threw the hops in Um, and we took that one step further and started growing those hops ourselves And we we, uh, grow them in Chico, we started with three acres of hops and we have nine now and um, wanted to uh, do them organically if we could and I thought well as long as we're doing that we should grow barley so we've been growing barley for we've grown hops for about seven years and barley for about three years so it, it's been a fun project, it's, it's not, my hops cost me $35 a pound to grow, and uh, anybody in the industry hops sell for about $4 a pound. So it's a, a very unprofitable uh, operation, but it's, it's been a lot of fun for us to do. I bought the very first new German hop picking machine shipped to the United States, I think ever, um, last year, and I, and I went over to, because to, there's still small hop farmers in Germany, and so I went to the manufacturer who makes the small hop picking machines and told him I wanted to buy it. He said, yeah, right. You know, he gets a lot of inquiries to a lot of American brewers. are like, hey, I want to grow hops and I want to buy a hop-taking machine. A quarter million dollars to buy the hop picking machine and you use it for one week a year. And uh, you know, you got to justify, you know, uh, harvesting, you know, 1,000 pounds of hops for that kind of investment. So it's a stupid investment. But um, so we've, we, and we've, been, we've been playing with that project for a few years and, and we like doing it, but it's not necessarily a good business venture.
0: All right, Ken, Father Paul, I'd like to thank you very much. That was very nice. This podcast was produced by the Brewers Association and presented by Craft Beer Radio. To find more information on Savor or further podcasts, visit craftbeerradio.com slash savor or craftbeer.com. This content is released under the Creative Commons license. Visit craftbeerradio.com for more information.